Welcome to the Harrington Star FinTech Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Discussions. I want to showcase people across our industry who are advocates for change. I love to celebrate the wins, but we know there is so much more to be done to ensure that change actually happens to build a truly inclusive industry. In these diversity, equity and inclusion discussions, I have a number of series. The Humans of FinTech, The Talent Surgery, The Maternity and Paternity Stories, and the longest running of all, the Women of FinTech podcast series. I do lots of work to drive change campaigns across our industry to increase inclusion within the workplace. So please contact me to see how we can partner together. You can contact me through LinkedIn or on my email, nadia.edwards-dashti at harringtonstar.com. In the meantime, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Women of Fintech podcast series. We are here today to celebrate the wins, raise awareness of the challenges, and walk the talk for change across the entire industry. Today, we are joined by Catherine Wooler, the Managing Director of Daxi. Daxi is seeking to disrupt the crypto exchange market by onboarding 500 million investors by 2022 through solving the mainstream adoption problem. Catherine is spearheading these huge goals, having successfully scaled up three disruptive businesses from early stage. She has 15 years professional experience in sales, marketing, strategy, and capital raises for a variety of businesses. A fintech expert, she regularly writes for trade and general press. Recent coverage includes Daily Express, Fintech Magazine, Fintech Alliance, Fintech Bulletin, Global Banking and Finance Review, and there are so many more that I could reel off as well. So it's going to be a really exciting conversation today. She's here to share her story with us. Welcome. Lovely to have you on an episode with us. Oh, great to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Um, and it's so nice to, to give such a big introduction like that. And um, I really could have reeled off so many more things that you write, write for. So I'm so excited to hear more about you and your story. But it'd be wonderful if you could open up by telling us a bit more about your role at Daxi and what it entails. Yeah, sure. So um, Daxi is a global fintech with six offices across six countries. So I head up the UK and Europe. I'm based uh, in the UK, obviously. So I have responsibility for that territory um, and we have, as you've heard, some quite big ambitions. So um, I'm just into my second year at Daxi. Uh, we're in hyper growth, which obviously is fantastic and a real privilege to work for a business in hyper growth, particularly over the COVID recession and pandemic. But of course, that comes with its, its challenges. So we're a crypto business. You know, crypto is a real niche within fintech. Um, and look, crypto is a really mature industry. I mean, it's five or six years old. So when you talk about fintech, well, look, we've got banks and asset managers that are hundreds of years old. So crypto really is quite new to the party. As an industry, we're still probably feeling our way around a little bit. And look, it's an amazing time to be in crypto. And I have to say, being a woman in fintech and a woman in crypto probably makes me, I don't know, like a, an alien from outer space. There, there aren't very many, <laughs> you can imagine. Yeah, well, this is exactly what we're here to talk about today, isn't it? So um, it'd be great just to hear a bit more about Daxi and, and what you do to disrupt the industry, but also what attracted you to this disruption? Yeah, sure. So I'm, I'm a real fan of crypto and blockchain. 
So uh, DAX is actually my third crypto blockchain business. When people say crypto, they just, they immediately think Bitcoin. That's the only crypto kind of the, the majority of the British public yeah. has heard of. So um, it might surprise you to know there is well over eight and a half thousand different cryptos out there. So it's a huge industry. It's valued in excess of a trillion. So I think people wrongly think it's really niche. There's, you know, a really small number. There's a couple of hundred people in back bedrooms, you know, that live with their parents that are, you know, just doing stuff huddled over a laptop. And that, that's just not the case anymore. So we're a crypto exchange. We help, help people buy and sell crypto. So it's a couple of things that have been unusual. Based in the UK, which very few of the exchanges are or have UK presence. We're on the FCA's permitted list. The FCA quite rightly is now much more involved in crypto, which we very much welcome. So there's two little things that are different. The first is that we don't cater for the trading audience. A lot of the crypto platforms are very much about day traders. We're not, we assist people that are looking to hold for the short to medium term. And we're very education focused. So there is so much misinformation, conjecture and rumor. Um, actually, I described Daxi as an education business first and a crypto exchange second. So we put out a huge amount of content around the industry, where it is, what it's doing, where it's going. And most of our crowd is a little bit older. A lot of sort of the, the crypto exchanges are super hip, young, trendy, millennial. We're a wealth business, so we're helping people uh, build wealth. So we have working on pension and ISA products. Um, we tend to have a slightly um, older crowd. And also what is completely, to my knowledge, unheard of is we are well over 50% female headcount, which is obviously extremely rare in fintech and almost unheard of in crypto and blockchain. Well, I'm really glad that you mentioned that because um, you've said that to me before. And I absolutely, I back you when you say it's completely unheard of. I mean, this is what people are actually striving towards. And I have so many conversations about the gender imbalance within our industry. And whenever you say to somebody, right, my North Star is to get us 50-50, it's like, oh, oh dear, that's, a bit, that's going to be a bit difficult. You know, as, as if representing, um, you know, 50% of the of, of what the UK is today is, isn't, isn't going to happen within business. And it's brilliant that you, that you are an example of that and something that I'm so glad that you've showcased. It'd be lovely to hear more about you now, like your career journey. You know, you've just mentioned that there were another couple of businesses also within crypto. I think just learning about this career journey of yours and some of your lessons along the way, it's so, it's so useful for us to hear. Sure. So um, I would love to say it was, you know, a master plan at work, but I think that would be massively overstating. I think I tend to just make very gut-based decisions and sort of follow what makes you happy and, and matches your values. So um, I've got an academic background. I had, I've got a history degree from the University of Cambridge, not very interesting, but totally unvocational. And I didn't graduate thinking, yeah, I want to use that. So I actually started off in sort of a property role. It was the heyday of, you know, having property shows wall to wall on the TV. So I actually sort of started off in the property industry with sort of real investment slant. So that sort of then took me more into sort of a financial services investment sort of arena. I, I suppose probably seven to 10 years ago, fintech was kind of just getting off the ground, yeah. which obviously is complete rubbish intellectually because we've always had technology mm. in financial services, but fintech as a self-aware self-perpetuating, self-identified industry, I would argue, in my opinion, is kind of seven to 10 years old. I ended up getting very interested in the fact that there was so much in fintech that needed disrupting. There were very, there was not really a sense 
10 years ago of putting the client first, really, they'd pay lip service to it from like a customer service point of view. But in terms of new and disruptive businesses coming out, it took a while for the penny to drop. Actually, if you put your customer first, um, that builds phenomenally strong businesses. And technology is a very good means to that end. So I actually joined a peer-to-peer business, which again, I used to literally at dinner parties have to explain what that was. Mm. Uh, people sort of knew what crowdfunding was, but peer-to-peer was this bizarre idea that you know you didn't need a bank, you could use technology to interface to someone that you never met, you were never going to meet, you didn't know their name. So um, I built out Europe's largest in its asset class um, as investment director over a couple of years. Uh-huh. And that really sort of got my interest in technology. So I'm not a technologist. I don't code. But what I am quite good at is explaining what the technology can do for the customer and in scaling up startups. So I've got one business from four to a thousand people. We had 400 million pounds worth of turnover. So I've normally been in reasonable demand from startups and they tend to vary from the ridiculous to the sublime. You get some really, really interesting phone calls and some really surreal phone calls. Yeah, I bet uh, you do. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that was more retail. So that was kind of the peer-to-peer was much more a retail sort of fintech proposition. And then I was, I just kind of was getting a sense that although retail was interesting, the bigger institutions were in a lot of pain. So they've got, you know, really glitchy, clunky, rubbish legacy technology they're really slow to adapt really slow to change and I got offered a role for a really interesting OTC derivatives tech platform which was in you know Deutsche Bank and City and UBS and some of the world's biggest asset managers so I got to spend a couple of years hanging out with some of the most important CTOs COOs to talk to them about the problems they were having so that was a big data proposition I wish I had a pound for every time I went to a meeting and someone assumed I was there to take notes. You know, actually, I'm, I'm global head of clients, actually. Which was a very cringy moment. Mm. So a very interesting couple of years. I was actually a, a contract role. So when that contract ended and I was offered Daxi, I'd done a little bit of board work, as I mentioned, in sort of the blockchain tokenization crypto space. And in my opinion, is future technology of our lifetime. So, you know, I... I always make the analogy that over a relatively short period of time, I, I'm old enough to remember the world without the internet. I'm 38, so I can remember having one computer that was shared between my entire class at primary school. You know, I can remember it being really exciting if someone had a mobile phone in the early 90s and actually you held the phone set and the battery lived in your massive coat pocket. <laughs> yeah. so it's my opinion that the advent of crypto and tokenization will be of the same magnitude as computers coming in full stop i think it will make the dot-com boom look like chicken feed Mm. so trying to stop crypto as i'm talking not about the industry i'm talking about the intellectual idea of crypto Um, trying to stop crypto is like trying to stop a freight train so um, I don't recommend anyone stands in front of a freight train, <laughs> um, yeah. but it would be like standing on the tracks thinking, oh, if I just stand here with my arm out, that will stop a freight train. It won't. So um, a lot of what I write about the press is about adoption. And look, three, four years ago, crypto was a small number of people in their back bedrooms. Now, you know, we're a trillion dollar industry. So I think my career trajectory was kind of property, then investments, then fintech, then banking, and that in my 
intellectually for me that inevitably drew me crypto which is where I am now and I took up my role uh, at Daxi about two years ago now to head up um, the expansion. It's such a fascinating journey and makes so much sense I know you said look there was never really you know like a master plan but looking back on it it, it makes sense why you moved from one to another and all of them were, were things that were really challenging and really sort of broaden your scope, which I know is so important to you. And I think that kind of takes me on to my next question, because you are very much about, you know, dri driving change. And I think even the whole purpose, the mission and purpose of Daxi is around that education and about, you know, dispelling myths and, and preconceptions. And I think that's incredibly important to, to, to me and what, what I try and drive within the industry. And you are running an initiative right now, uh, Women Who Crypto, um, I wanted to just hear a bit more about that, exactly what it is, how people can get involved, uh, how to get in touch. Yeah, sure. So I facilitate and I'm absolutely thrilled to do so. It's probably some of the best days I have in my working life. Um, a group called Women Who Crypto. It's free, of course. You can find us on Facebook. Of course, we've got a group or you can find us via the Daxi website, which is D-A-C-X-I. So we believe it's the largest online meetup of women with an interest in crypto. So, of course, there's women on that uh, group that work in it, like myself. Um, there's people that are obsessed about it, people that have a passing interest in it, people that are sort of just dabbling and just getting, you know, feeling around for it. And I was finding that a lot of the dialogue around women in blockchain or women interested in crypto was quite elitist and quite, what's the word, a little bit nerdy, kind of, oh, here's my PhD in Harvard. I've been to MIT. Look, this is how I code. And that's great. There's a place for that. But actually, we wanted to get normal women sharing stories. It is education, of course, but it's very conversational. So we try and have guest speakers from our community talking about their journey so we'll just say what's happened to you what led you to this space what's your take on the world now and my goodness the variety of stuff that we talk about of course the common thread is crypto but really it's more about female financial empowerment and sort of achieving what you want to and that comes in so many flavors so hence we end up talking about financial freedom or financial education and then we end up talking about you know planning your family or childcare or dating and look it's just an it's, it's a hoot the invite starts with pour yourself a glass of wine and look it's just a very supportive community with look a lot of variety um you know there's people from all walks of life talking about what they've achieved and how and that's um, to me really inspirational stuff it's so inspirational to hear you talk about it and just that like I'm a big fan of relatable role models. I, I completely agree with what you say there. I mean, it's, I don't take anything away from these these wonderful PhD minds of of whatever it may be. But sometimes, um, and I look back at my own career, you know, who who did I have to look up to? And it was always somebody that I just felt I couldn't touch, I could never reach, I could never live up to. And actually, for me as a personality, what's going to inspire me? What's going to make me feel confident to want to join a community? And everything that you've described, it really, that's really hit home. And please, I definitely encourage uh, the audience, if you know about crypto, if you love crypto, get involved. If you don't know anything about crypto and you want to learn, get involved. It's a, it's a definitely just get involved thing because I know how much you're, you're working on the accessibility of this. And it's such an important mission. So with this in mind, I wanted to kind of go back to what we said about 
Daxi as a fintech and boasting this gender balance that you are able to boast and and what you think the reasons for that are? Sure so I, I tread very carefully and I bow to minds much higher than mine in building teams that make sense culturally um, and a lot's been written about that and look, I think we could spend 24 hours talking about positive discrimination and it's probably not an area I want to want to delve too much in but what I will say is people tend to recruit in their own image and what you absolutely don't want is a cookie cutter approach so you've just got let's just say you have a headcount of, of 100 you just don't want 99 clones of the senior management and the challenge is the senior management is nearly always white middle class and male so unsurprisingly white middle class males guess what they tend to identify with get on better with and you know seek to promote broadly other middle class white males so um i'm quite unusual i'm I'm a female md and of course when we we hire and you know, we're, we'll probably have 10 x our team over 18 months. So culturally, that's quite a, it's a multi-headed beast to keep, keep control of and make sure, you know, the team is cohesive and we're all pulling in the same direction. So I absolutely look in the mirror every day and think I have recruited the best person for that role. And I absolutely know in my heart that the best teams have variety so don't just go and recruit someone that you think, oh, you know, I'm in my late 30s and I'm white and I'm middle class and I like horses and I shop here and I go to this restaurant and I have this many children. I'll just have another couple of me. That, that doesn't make sense. So we have a, a lot of variety in our team. It happens to be that we are about 55% female, both in the UK um, and globally, actually. But look, we are all united by a common dream <laughs> to to you know we've got such massive ambitions that makes us pull in the right direction and look I think when you are you know and I get very irritated I think you've used the word lip service already when someone says oh oh we've got a we've got really good gender balance and it's like you know 10% or something oh it's above industry average you're like yeah that that's not great or my absolute the one that really makes my blood boil is yeah, you know, we, we actively promote, you know, women, our women team members having maximum opportunity. And then look, you just start scrolling through LinkedIn because you're being nosy and they're in all the most junior roles. You know, oh, we've got a female office manager. Yeah, whoopie do. Oh, and you know, we, we've got some really junior PR and comms people and they're all in the very feminine, you know, sections of communication and marketing and all that stuff. And look, you nearly fall off your chair if you see a female CTO or, yeah, well, frankly, any female C-suite in banking or in fintech. So I feel really strongly that if it enables you to recruit the right people and someone says, I'm caring for my, you know, elderly mother, or I just need Thursday afternoons off because my middle child has to go to swimming, or I just need, if that is the best candidate and, you know, there are a few things that, that you need to provide flexibility on, go for it. And that flexibility can be time or can be culture or can be pay structure. It doesn't matter what it is. From a business perspective, if not a moral perspective, which is what it is for me, you should be making the allowances, whether they're male, female, from outer space, it doesn't matter. And if it's the best person, you know, let's work out the best person, then let's work out how we can get them into the team and how we can 
help them be the best version of themselves and do the best job they can rather than just going let's have another white middle middle class man Mm. and actually the most successful businesses have huge variety across their headcount and I mean variety in every respect variety of gender age sexuality ethnic I mean the whole kit and caboodle let's just get you know you need superstars you know we're we're not a startup you know we've now got six offices globally but we need superstars to deliver what we're looking to do we need I hate I hate it when I see job specs with the word rockstar in but we need high achievers and if that means recruiting across a broader pool in you know 10 different defining characteristics we will do that and that's worked very well so far yeah and I think the way that you've explained that is absolutely spot on there was a responsibility in all of us to question how and why we are doing things and that that recruitment in our own image is something that I'm incredibly passionate about because to change that you really have to hit the heart of an individual by saying, right, let's just pause for a second. Why are you making the decisions that you're making? What makes you feel? What, what, when you say, my gut feel is that's a good person, what actually are you saying? You think that person's going to laugh at your jokes and you'll enjoy going to the pub with them? Or, or are they the best person for the role? Yeah, um, exactly. And I think you've been just so clear with, with how, how you turn that into a reality. And it's great to hear because you know, the, the proof's in the pudding. You've got the, you've got the results to back up everything that you've just said there, which is just phenomenal to hear and super, duper inspiring. So just pulling on that thread a bit further, in terms of the industry itself and what we need to overcome right now to achieve real, authentic diversity and inclusion, you've, you've touched a bit on that already about, you know, these sort of lip service and sweeping statements. What do you think are the biggest challenges that we need to overcome? Yeah, sure. Well, obviously we had a chat last week about nightmare interviews, didn't we? And one that really sticks in my mind. And of course, I won't mention the company because they're still around and they they seem to be doing okay. I interviewed for a, it it was fintech, but it was sort of a very AI investment banking fintech. And they were in a serviced office near near Waterloo, which is is great. And um, it was one of those serviced offices which had a lot of glass. So it was quite a startup. It had 20 or so people 15 of those were, you know, really bright PhD coders with obviously an, an AI bent. And I remember going for an interview and like 15 pairs of eyes just watched me get walked past this fishbowl. And I just thought, yeah, this is, this is not for me culturally. And it, I'm sure it was an interesting job. I actually was quite noted about who they recruited in the end. And guess what? They had another middle class white dude. So I feel that in order to get... The best people, full stop. You know, and obviously, uh, we're talking about women in fintech and, and genuine gender diversity. But I think, like I say, it makes sense to give people the flexibility to be the best version of themselves and do the best job they can for you. So that doesn't matter if a guy is saying to you, oh, you know, I, I really like to pick up my daughter from school on a Friday. Fantastic. Look, you know, is there any chance I can work from home you know, two days a week. And of course, the great thing about the pandemic is people have suddenly seen that actually the world doesn't stop if oh. a significant portion of your headcount is at home. If they are committed and motivated, the world will not fall apart. And I think it'll be very interesting to see once we are all properly on the other side of the pandemic, I would be very surprised if most businesses are not predominantly from home. So I mean, okay, look, we want you in the office these two days, the other three, you know, you can work from wherever you like. So I think flexibility for women is is really important. And actually, that's not just whether you have children. It doesn't matter whether you've got young children, teenagers, no children. 
we're all entitled to go to the gym or look, I just want to, you know, get some random admin done on my, on my lunch break. So I think the flexibility across the board is really important. I think um, having some really honest conversations about career progression, you know, it's great. You know, have those exit interviews. Why are you hemorrhaging good people, whether they're male or female or any age, let's find out. And I think, you know, there is that glass ceiling and just say, look, you know, I can't be in the office till nine o'clock at night. It doesn't work for me. And look, that's really limited my career. So I think, you know, of course you need a recruitment level, but once they're in, you know, let's have some systems and processes which actually make that a reality rather than just, as we say, you know, the the lip service. I am so, so happy that you've discussed that because, you know, as a recruiter, this is such a huge part of my process, which not, not many people would associate with recruitment. They associate that with get somebody, get somebody through the door. But for me, it's about, how are people promoted? How are people retained? How are people invested in? What are they learning? How are they progressing? How engaged are they? Like there's some terrible statistics about how disengaged the UK workforce is. And for me, that is so, so important because the knock-on effect to that, if someone isn't feeling up for it every single day, what are they achieving for your business? Like that knock-on effect is so, so huge. So I'm over the moon that you've explained that the way that you have, because that to me is such an important call to action. And it does take me to my, my last question. If there's sort of one call to action to the industry that you'd leave us all with and say, this is what we should be doing, like what you just sort of hang your hat on for this inclusion, for people to really think and and take away, what would it be? So you owe it to give back. So if you are privileged enough, and I'm quick to check my privilege here, you know, I grew up in a home where I was well loved. I had enough to eat. I got to school. I had an education. You know, I'm not from a war-torn country. If you're lucky enough to be doing well, and I mean at all, you don't have to be, you know, C-suite. You don't have to be making 50 hires a year. If you are privileged enough to be doing well, relatively in global terms, which let's be honest means you have enough to eat and a roof over your head, you have a moral obligation to give back. And by giving back, that means mentoring that means giving five minutes over the water cooler to bounce an idea off it means giving an introduction to someone that will be useful you know who you should talk to so and so it means if you know you've got someone who is behind the curve in their promotion plan or they're not quite being paid what they should or they're just not happy at work you have a moral obligation to give back and look it makes for happier team members it makes for better recruitment decisions it makes for a more cohesive team and it makes for a better bottom line. It's a moral imperative from where I'm sitting and it makes perfect commercial sense. So, so why wouldn't you? Well, what a wonderful way to draw this um, podcast to a close. I absolutely love the balance of, you know, moral obligation, but also it's affecting your, your, your business bottom line. You know, it, it's just so clear of why we need to be doing this, but also you've made it so clear of some of the hows. And that's what's really important to me in this podcast series, that people can, can leave, leave the listen and say, right, I can take that away and actually implement it. So thank you so much for being yourself and sharing your journey and, and giving us just that insight into you and what you've learned along the way. It's been absolutely brilliant. And thank you very much for being part of the Women of Fintech podcast series. Thank you for having me.